Welcome to the Business Big Bang Theory, a podcast from the Business Centre where we talk about all things small business. Welcome to the Business Big Bang Theory podcast. It's our cybersecurity culture series with Sarah and Kristen. And today we're super excited to join Andrew Reeves. Andrew is a PhD candidate and business consultant. His work focuses on human aspects of cybersecurity, specifically how cognitive fatigue can influence employee cybersecurity behaviour. Andrew's research has been presented most recently at the 22nd International Conference on Human-Computer Interaction in Copenhagen, Denmark, and has previously presented at the 13th Annual APS Industrial and Organisational Psychology Conference, the Data61 Defence, Science and Technology Research Showcase, and the International Symposium on Human Aspects of Information Security and Assurance and the Australasian Conference of Undergraduate Research. Andrew is currently completing a combined PhD Master of Psychology at the University of Adelaide under the supervision of the University of the Department of Defence, Social Science and Technology. Sarah and Kristen are so excited to be joined by him today. Are you looking to grow your business? We have a fantastic team of experience-led business advisors and online toolboxes that can guide you to scaling your business. You can find all the information at businesscentre.com.au. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, and I'm Kristen. And we're from the Cybersecurity Culture Program here at the Business Centre. This project is funded by the Australian Government Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources through the Cybersecurity Business Connect and Protect Program. This series, we will be highlighting a range of cybersecurity issues within business around culture, impacts of breaches, what to look out for, real life stories, where to seek support or report a breach and some easy strategies to start protecting your customers and your brand. It is crucial to be proactive and have strategies in place for your protection. I'd like to reference today from a 2021 journal article encouraging employee engagement with cybersecurity. How to tackle cyber fatigue. Cybersecurity fatigue is a form or work disengagement manifesting as a wariness or aversion to workplace behaviours or advice. And as an example, employees may become overconfident and or complacent, which can demonstrate negative behaviours. To discuss more about this, let's welcome today's guest, Andrew Reeves. Hi, Andrew. G'day. Good to be here. And thank you for joining us. So today we would like to explore cybersecurity fatigue and advice fatigue. There are many changes of advice being given, and this can overwhelm not just small business owners, but all businesses, CEOs, owners and individuals. So can you explain what cybersecurity and advice fatigue actually means? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Advice fatigue was a term my research group came up with a couple of years ago. And essentially, it was a response to an unfortunate nature of the beast, as it were, to do with cybersecurity, which is that it's always changing. To some extent, we have no real control over that. Um, the threat actors are constantly changing what they do. We obviously then try to defend against those attackers, but then they then try something else. And as a result of that, the advice that we give to people is constantly changing. And that makes perfect sense when you're, you, know, you have a cybersecurity background like myself or like yourself, but to end users that are constantly receiving this advice, it can be very frustrating to be told to do one thing for two years, three years, five years, and then suddenly you're told, oh, no, you're wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. So we called that advice fatigue, the idea that 
you know, either you're receiving too much advice about what you should or shouldn't do, or the advice is constantly changing, or the advice is too complicated. And all of those things lead you to just disengage. You just go, no, I'm sick of hearing about this. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. You know, a great example of that is the advice that was used to be about password management and the old rule of thumb that is actually still in use in a, in a lot of places uh, is that you should be regularly updating your passwords. And a lot of big tech suppliers and big organizations will enforce password updates on their staff. So every, you know, three months, six months, whatever, they'll get a prompt saying, you know, your password has expired, it's due to update. So that was considered just standard practice. And the reason for that was that say an attacker or someone who shouldn't have it has has gained access to your password for some reason. You're not always going to know that that's happened. So if we just change our passwords every six months or three months or whatever, if the password has been leaked, then we've we've put some security back on our account because sure they they did have our password, but now we've changed it. So now they don't. That was the the rationale behind the forced password updates. But there's been a lot of research on the effect that that actually has. And unfortunately, what tends to happen is people either just um, increase the number on their password by one. You know, I'm guilty of that as well. So that actually hasn't added any more security. If someone did have the old password, they could very easily guess what the new one is. Um, But not only that, because you have to constantly change your password, you have to constantly come up with new passwords. It encourages people to choose really weak passwords you know for the first i don't know five times maybe you'll choose something nice and unique but after a while you're out of ideas you can't think of what your password's going to be and it encourages people to use things like password one or the name of their business and, and things like that so even though there was good intentions behind that original advice it actually backfired and, and reduced the security posture of the organizations that implemented it so as a result, the advice has changed and it said, well, you know, not everyone agrees, of course, in the nature of the beast, but generally speaking, professionals in, cyber, in the cybersecurity domain tend to say things like, okay, it's now more important that your password is unique. So it's not reused across other high importance accounts. And also that it's relatively complex in terms of password entropy, so length and character classes and things like that. And then if there is a stage where you detect that your password has been leaked, that's when you change it. But other than that, you leave it the same. So that's the current advice. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with changing your advice midway through the piece. That's exactly what we should be doing. You know, new, new information comes in and we go, okay, actually, we were wrong. Now we're going we're gonna to change our advice. The, the problem comes when that advice is sort of dictated out to people as if it should have always been the case. You know, I've, I've heard people talk about how um, you know, they can't believe that some businesses are still enforcing password management um, and, and password updates. And, you know, you, you can't help but go, okay, but that is what we used to tell people to do. It's completely understandable that they're still doing that and we shouldn't be judging them for doing that. The second we start judging people, the second they're going to stop listening to us. So that's really, you know, I might've gone on track, off track a little bit, but that's what advice fatigue is. We need to, you know, acknowledge that it's going to constantly change and acknowledge the fact that that is unfortunately going to be a frustrating experience for people when we've told them to do one thing, now we're telling them to do something else and sort of think about how we can best deliver that advice so that it doesn't frustrate or fatigue people. Kristen was talking earlier about passphrases. So again, that's a new piece of advice that we're being given. So what's the difference between a passphrase and a password? Passphrase is normally the, so, you know, Definitions always a bit different. Generally speaking, it's the idea that there's you've got a few different words in there, so you've chosen a phrase rather than just a single word. 
most common sort of password that people use is, a, is just a single word with a couple of numbers in there. Um, and then if they have to, they'll add a special character and invariably the special character is an exclamation point. Michael McIntyre does a great stand-up bit about that. So that's not particularly secure, but the idea of a passphrase is, okay, it's easier for a lot of people to remember a sentence. So, you know, the quick red fox jumps over the lazy whatever, you know, it's relatively easy to remember that. It's much easier to remember that than it is to remember a single word where you've changed one letter to the at symbol and one letter to an exclamation point and you put numbers on the end and all the rest of it. It's easier to remember a phrase. And if you actually look at the entropy of both of those things, the longer phrase is actually stronger than the shorter complex thing. So a long phrase is both stronger in terms of number of guesses it would take to get it right and it uh, is easier to remember. So yeah, sometimes there'll be advice now that says, yeah, don't, don't worry about say character classes. Don't worry about having special characters in there necessarily. Just go for length and just choose a massive long sentence. That's easy to remember because it's a sentence you have in your head and you call that a passphrase. Sometimes they involve, they'll actually have spaces between the words, uh, but a lot of systems don't allow you to actually enter spaces. Um, so you'll just have a sentence where you've, you've taken the spaces out, but it's still relatively easy to remember so that's a quick simple definition of the difference but that can be some good advice yeah that makes a lot of sense i heard a funny little meme the other day it was that in 2021 that they can't wait for that to end because they've run out of passwords and having a sentence would yeah make it easier do you have a part-time business that you'd like to take full-time and beyond our experienced business advisors can support you in growing your area and making that big bang in business contact us at businesscenter.com.au so (laughs) second question for you andrew employee attitudes and the risks they pose in business and how can we recognize and acknowledge the challenges and barriers without having negative stigma and emotions attached i think it sort of goes back to what i was just saying about how it is often the case that we see people or we see organizations doing things that we wouldn't consider to be particularly secure there does seem to be this um, habit of the response to be you know how dare you why are you doing that why have you not kept up you know and i don't think a, a lot of that isn't necessarily meant to shame people but unfortunately it does and i think you know i've I've used the metaphor before it's like you know if someone was you know we we have to remember who the bad guy is right so the metaphor i've used before is someone walking home from work and say you know they work a night shift somewhere and they're they're walking home from work at like 10 30 p.m it's night obviously and you know they get attacked someone mugs them or something it would be a strange response to to look at that person and go, what the hell were you doing out on the street walking home at night at 10.30? Because, you know, you're coming home from work. It's a perfectly normal thing to do. The more empathetic response would be to say, well, no, the, the bad guy in that situation was not the person walking home. It was obviously the attacker, right? So you wouldn't blame the victim. You'd, you'd say, no, the, the attacker is the one who's at fault. And sure, you, maybe you could talk about different things they might do differently in the future to try to mitigate that. But you'd never say that that person was somehow at fault for being attacked. And it's the same with cybersecurity, right? If an attack happens, the bad guy is the attacker. So we can't have this mindset of, oh, you know, your employees made a mistake, they've fallen for a phishing attack, or they've performed some behavior that's enabled an attack, and and they're the bad guy. No, they're not the bad guy. The bad guy is the attacker. We can talk to the employee about what they can do differently in the future, maybe to, to mitigate the risk. But the fact they fell for attack is not not their fault, and we shouldn't be dealing with it in that way. And that sort of comes back to, you know, what I was saying, you know, if we do 
if we do blame the individual that has fallen for the attack, we run the risk of them disconnecting completely from what we have to say. And that doesn't result in behavior change, right? Whereas if we actually empathize with them and go, okay, well, what was actually going on? You know, uh, half the time when an attack happens, it's because um, someone's feeling really rushed or stressed or under pressure at work. And so they're not thinking as clearly. And, and when a request comes through to action an invoice or something, they just do it without actually checking if, say, the invoice is legitimate. And, you know, right there, you've lost money to the business. I mean, it, it would be, again, a strange response to say, like, oh, you know, it's your fault. You should be doing something differently. Well, actually, that person was feeling very stressed. And in stressed situations, we do make mistakes in our decision making. That's a completely normal human thing to do. What actually can we do? What can we do in the future to, so that those really important decisions are not being made at high stress times, for example, might be one way to, to do it. Or just look at, you know, why is this person under so much stress? Is there some way we can actually you know, manage that a bit differently. So I think some of those ways is how we can really get rid of that kind of stigma. The other way to do it, I guess, is simply to talk about it. Again, it's like you're not the bad guy if you've fallen for an attack. So if your business has fallen for an attack, talk about it with other small businesses, right? If you're a small business, you've been attacked. Often small businesses will be interconnected with each other. Talk about it to your stakeholders, internal and external. Say, this is what happened. This is what caused it. There's no shame about that. You're not the bad guy. And, you know, passing on that information might help them avoid similar attacks in the future. Through your research, are you finding now, because cybersecurity is such a hot topic, are you finding that businesses are starting to talk to each other about issues that may arise? Or is there still a bit of stigma around this? And is there anywhere that people can go to express this in a safe format where they're not going to be judged that you are aware of? Not that I'm aware of it would be something that certainly would be a good thing to create um in terms of you know as, as you said yes yeah, cybersecurity is obviously such a hot button topic at the moment particularly you know post covid uh, there's been a lot of new i guess not exactly new but updated um cybersecurity threats um, as a result of covid a lot of stuff around work from home has opened up new vectors and obviously we're just hearing about a lot of new attacks that are happening so it's Certainly on people's minds, um, we actually did a, a tiny bit of research and hasn't actually been published yet, but last year it must have been. And, and we had, by complete accident, we'd taken two data points. One was just before COVID, and obviously we had no idea COVID was coming. And then the second data point was mid to late last year. So once you know COVID had really ramped up and in Australia, at least, it was certainly much more of an issue. And in both of those, we'd measured risk perceptions around cybersecurity, and they had risen a little bit. We weren't sure which way that was going to go. You could make the argument either way. You, you could say that the pandemic resulted in people being more aware of security and therefore the, their risk perception increased. The other way you could make the argument is you could say, well, COVID formed this big risk compared to which all other risks pale in comparison, right? And so maybe you could say that people might go, well, no, we just need to keep our business operating and we need to keep operating in any way we can. And therefore, you know, sure, we'll, we'll cut corners and we won't be operating in the most secure way because our business needs to survive. So we weren't sure which way that was going to go when we took those two data points. And obviously the nature of that sort of research is that we did it by accident. We didn't design it to measure the effects of COVID. I mean, how, could, how we had no idea COVID was coming. Um, so we can't say for sure how, you know, reliable that those results are, but it does seem like the former explanation is is correct. You know, COVID has highlighted the issue to a lot of people and that's increased their perception of cybersecurity risk. 
Um, you'd hope as well that would flow into, you know, people talking about it more openly. And that's why I think, you know, um, initiatives like, you know, what, what you guys are doing are so important because um, it does get people talking about it. Mm, that's true. We do have some case studies coming out too. So and further to that, what are the types of human motivators and values within business and how can it be implemented in a positive and successful way without the overwhelm? Because like you said, the pandemic has brought so many good and bad uh, in terms of this. So how do we now look at the new human motivators within our businesses? Big question, sorry. It, it is, but it's a very good question and something we've had to, um, we've had chats about before. The, you know, human motivation and human values is obviously incredibly complicated. Um, and like anything in psychological research, there's a lot of different models that try to balance. They, they want to simplify the incredible complexity that exists between motivators, um, but they don't want to simplify it too much that you've lost accuracy, right? So they're trying to sort of hit that sweet spot where it's simple enough that we can make decisions based on it, but not so simple that we've lost all accuracy. The model I tend to use, it came out of a, research, a researcher called Swartz, and it's similar to some of the other models as well. There's around 11 different motivators and values, which sounds like a lot, but a lot of them are very intuitive. And they're things like, you know, motivated by money, motivated by pleasing others, motivated by building friendships, motivated by achievement and being recognized for achievement. And these are all things that we all, to some extent, score on, right? You're not going to be necessarily unmotivated by all of those things or extremely motivated by all of those things. Everyone's going to sit on the spectrum somewhere. But humans are a little bit strange, <laughs> of course. And particularly when you said about, you know, without overwhelming, you know, as I talk about values, you know, it suddenly it starts to seem a little bit overwhelming. It's like, well, how can we use all of those things? I think with getting people on side, the big thing is how we frame the discussion. So often with cybersecurity, we talk about things as a loss. So we'll say, the reason you're doing cybersecurity is because you don't want to lose money, or you don't want to lose access to data, or you don't want your systems to go offline, whatever it happens to be. And, and we put all these figures up on the board that say, you know, the average cyber attack costs a business X million dollars. And yet it's always framed as a loss. But again, humans are weird, right? So humans tend not to behave in a way that avoids a loss as much as they behave in a way that seeks a gain. It's a broad oversimplification. But if we can, if we can reframe our pitch, as it were, so that we're not talking about avoiding a loss and instead we're talking about seeking a gain, that tends to be more effective at changing behaviour. So rather than saying to a business, oh, you know, if, if you lose, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you're hit with a cyber attack, you're going to lose $3 million, you could say the other way around, you say, okay, if you do cybersecurity well, your organization will be more stable and more productive than your competitors. And that's something you can sell to your stakeholders. You know, we do the same thing with OHS. Sure, we talk about the OHS risk of, you know, oh, if someone has a workers' compensation claim, it's going to cost you X amount of money. Yeah, we talk about that. But we also talk about it the other way. It's like, no, if you want your business to scale and get bigger, you need to have safety bedded down. As soon as you start taking on bigger and bigger projects and, and people are injuring themselves, that's going to be a real bottleneck on your productivity. So we frame it as a game. You do the same with cybersecurity. It's not just that you're avoiding a loss. It's that 
getting security right will mean you can scale out your business faster. Otherwise, we tend to get stuck in this mindset of, oh, you know, I'm still a small business who would want my data type thing. But, you know, before you know it, you're not a small business, you're medium, you're medium large, and you're still using the same security systems that you were using when you were smaller, and you're, you're right for an attack. Um, so, and then that gets back, sorry, I should actually get back to the question, which was about human motivators and values. The example I gave there, I was aligning security to essentially a financial motivator by saying, if you do security well, your business will be, you know, um, be more profitable or whatever. So you could say that that's a financial motivation. You could also say that's a bit of an achievement motivation. You want to do well, right? Mm -hmm. So, but different businesses will be motivated by different things. And the people in those businesses, so the leadership of those businesses will be motivated by different things. Some businesses aren't particularly interested in profitability. I mean, obviously they're non-profit organizations. They will be motivated by something else. They'll be motivated by the outcomes on their key stakeholders, whoever they are. Or they'll be motivated by the impact they're having on a particular sector, if that's what their focus is. So instead of, for those businesses, it might not make sense for us to talk about security in terms of money, we might talk about it in terms of whatever those outcomes are. So if we say, okay, well, if your systems go offline, you're not going to be able to service those key stakeholders. And again, that's almost making it a, a loss. So we could say instead, well, the better you do security, the more you're able to um, support your stakeholders and the better you will do against your competitors. And so again, making it, a, making it a gain. So I think it can seem overwhelming when we talk about these different motivators, but half, you know, these aren't you know, particularly complicated ideas. The idea is simply that we should be viewing security as a positive thing, as something that's gainful and not, you know, otherwise the, the mindset we see is that people say, oh, security is just something that gets in the way. I'm so sick of having to do this or that or whatever. If you're in that mindset, you're going to bypass and take shortcuts at every opportunity. Um, but if you can, if we can reframe it so that people can say, actually, no, you know, Keeping secure is, is a critical part of my business and it enables me to do what I need to do. I think we've got a, a better shot at changing behaviour. Do you have a business idea, but you're not sure it'll work? We have small business toolboxes and expert business advisors to support and guide you through your startup process. Contact us via our website to find out how. Businesscentre.com.au. So I just wanted to talk a bit more about small business uh, at the Business Centre. That's who we deal with. We deal with the cafes, the retail stores, the beauty salons, the hairdressers, like all of the small business, all the essential services, I should say. And I think what a lot of people say in small business is, well, why would, how would cyber affect me? Like, I'm only small. Why? What would they want with me? Surely I'd be safe. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that's a super common mindset. You know, it's, it's not unheard of that you hear similar things even in the medium to large business. You know, they'll point to larger businesses and go, well, I'm not a bank. I'm not Department of Defense. I'm not, you know, something like that. I, surely the, all the attackers are going after them. They're not going after me. And I think it comes down to, you know, what you might call their mental model, like the, the idea that they have of, of the, the problem space and how that affects them. And really the question is, okay, if you don't think you're the big fish, who is the big fish? So we might say, okay, say one of the major banks, they surely are a big fish. To some extent they are because they have a lot of assets on hand, right? But they also have incredibly sophisticated defense and they have assets on hand, so they have money to put into defense. 
So sure, there's, there's a lot of gold behind those doors, but good luck getting through the doors. The biggest fish isn't the business with the most money on hand. The biggest fish is the business that has some money and very little defense. That's more worth an attacker's time than, than some of the really big companies. The other thing to be aware of uh, is that, you know, I've been doing it as well, but it's really usual for people to talk in terms of, you know, personification of the attacker. We say the attacker will do this and they want to do that. But often attacks are largely automated, uh, particularly the first few steps. Um, you know, a batch phishing email goes out, they see what they can get. Once they get it, there's an, then an algorithm that decides what the next step is. So often a, a human doesn't actually step into pretty far into the piece. So they're not, you know, it, it's not a matter of their time. Um, it doesn't increase an attacker's time to add you to the list of people they're going to attack. Yeah, they're quite happy to just try their luck at everything. And I've, I've used the metaphor before at, of your door at home, right? You know, we all know that the lock on our door at home is not perfect. It could be picked. Um, it could be just hip and shouldered through most of our doors, probably. Um, mm. If someone really cared, they could probably take the hinges off the door and take it that way. And if they didn't even want to go through the door, they could smash a window and get in, right? So we're aware that the locks we have on our, our homes are not perfect, but we're still happy to leave our house behind that lock um, because they tend to work. Like most of the time we come home and there's been no break-in. So that's lovely. But the reason those locks work is obviously not because it's a technically beautiful, perfect lock. The reason it works is because it's a bit of a deterrent. It means there's a time commitment that a would-be attacker needs to get in, which increases the chance they'll get caught. You know, someone will notice that they're going in through a window or that they're unscrewing a door or whatever. And also it, it, uh, it avoids like um, attacks of... Uh, just convenience, you know, if someone's walking past and they notice the doors open, they can just wander in. And also there's a bit of an area effect, right? So there's only so many people in your neighborhood that are probably willing to, you know, do a home invasion and rob someone. So it's just a rule of numbers, you know, the, the, a lot of houses, not many robbers, you're probably going to be fine. But all of those things I just mentioned don't apply to cybersecurity. So the idea that there's a limited amount of attackers in your area, well, you're on the internet. The attacker could be in, you know, on the other side of the world and they can have a go at your systems. And the idea that you know, it's a bit of a deterrent because there's a chance they'll get caught. Well, unfortunately, most of the time attacks, you know, it's hard enough to work out who launched the attack, let alone track them down and then prosecute them. And even if you did manage to figure out who did it, they're probably in a country that's not going to punish their own people for an attack that happened outside of their borders so no there's no risk to them of being caught and you know it, it doesn't even increase their time because they can just add you to a list of other names that they were uh, do an automated attack on anyway it doesn't increase their time or effort or anything so the metaphor i often use is i say well okay imagine that same lock on your door but when you leave your house this morning every criminal in the world could have a go getting in they could do it for almost no cost or no time to themselves and they could do it with very little chance of being caught would you still trust the lock on your door now obviously we wouldn't most of us would probably not leave the house but it sort of reminds us that in that situation any amount of money they can get out of you is worth their time because they've had to put in very little time and effort so even if you don't have a huge amount of money it's still worth their time yeah it's um, a and scary thought that it is. And you probably have more assets than you realise. I mean, once you've got a few staff, you know, if you've got four staff at 50 grand each, your turnover is at least 200 grand a year. That's more than worth that time. 
Mm. Mm. Yeah, it can totally, even a small amount would totally break a small business. Like, it would be devastating. Let's talk all things small business. For some practical advice and direction, DM us on Facebook or Instagram at The Business Centre. I want to move on to the next question because it's quite a large one for you (laughs) to answer. So the impacts of a cyber breach, what are the impacts on a person's psyche? So we have discussed this between us before and we've spoken about threat actors already. And it's not always, like you just said, a business being personally targeted. But as a human being, we still feel extremely violated. So, and it can create a lot of unwanted stress, turmoil, uh, overwhelm, etc. And we've spoken about, you know, the reframing a little bit of a serious of and how serious a cyber loss is. But the whole impact from a human being's perspective on the psyche. Tell us about that because I know that you have done quite a lot of research on this. So, what are the impacts us human beings have when we've been essentially robbed, I guess, virtually. Well, and that is, yeah, and that is the word to use. Um, So I haven't actually done any direct research on that myself, but there is research out there that I've had to be across. You know, it it, it is fair to use the analogy of a physical robbery. You know, um, we mentioned hair salons before, you know, if you turn up and your business has been broken into and all of your equipment has been taken and plus whatever money you happen to have on hand in that business. Obviously, that's a devastating thing to see and depending on how, like, at what stage your business is, that could be crippling and that could end the business, right? And it's the same with cybersecurity. You know, if you discover that you've been tricked out of a certain amount of money or that they've hacked in and stolen a certain amount of money or they just bring your systems down so you lose productivity. But all those things can be critical, uh, um, can, you know, kill the business as well. And there's an incredible sense of unfairness, you know. It, and, of course, it isn't fair. It does feel like a violation. It feels like, you know, some all this time and effort you've put into building your business has been, to some extent, wiped away by some random attacker. So there can be a real effect on on people. You know, and there's one of two responses you can have from that. Sometimes that will be motivating and people will say, you know, that experience that I've had, I was attacked, I was the victim of an attack, therefore I'm going to, you know, make sure that I do everything I can in the future to make sure my business is as secure as possible. But unfortunately, the, there's the other response as well, which is that you, that, you, that you sort of get disheartened and there's a level of apathy that, you know, I, I can't do anything. You know, nothing I can do can protect against that attack because we picture cybersecurity as this really complicated thing. And again, we picture CSI, in, I'm into the matrix, all this stuff. And often attacks aren't like that. Um, the majority of attacks start by human error. So the most common first step into your systems is because an employee fell for a phishing attack. There was a weak password that was guessed. Um, They'd reused their password on other accounts outside of the business and those accounts were breached. Therefore, these people had access to their work password and they got in. And they're all human things, they're not technical things. So you don't have to be a expert in these tech systems. You know, it's just as simple as making sure your staff are doing uh, the right thing. They're not reusing passwords, at least, you know, it would be impossible for us to have a unique password across every account. No, I can't imagine anyone who'd have a memory 
to be able to remember all that, but at least that you're not reusing critical passwords with less critical. So if you've got a password you're using on an online shopping thing that doesn't even have your credit card saved in it, that can be as simple as you like, but don't have that the same as your work password because otherwise if they've got one, they've got both. You know, educating your staff on what phishing emails are and what to look for um, to detect them. Things like that. that that's, you know, going to get you 80, 90% of the way to defending yourself. You don't have to worry too much about these incredibly complicated ideas that we have in our head about cybersecurity. Because, yeah, otherwise, if, if, if you've been hit with a big attack and you feel like the mitigation strategies are too complicated, then you're probably not even going to try. You're just going to go, well, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do whatever I do day to day. And if attack happens, it happens. But there's nothing I can do about it, which isn't really the, the mindset we want to have. We hear a lot about, you know, changing the passwords, passphrases. We know that we need to do that, but where, how, how do we do it? Where, do, where can we look for help and support? What are some recommendations from yourself that you would suggest? You know, some people could have up to, what, 100 passwords, I guess. So Yeah, that's the thing. And as I said, you know, I, could you imagine if we said all of those have to be unique? And it comes back to the advice fatigue because you do sometimes hear that. Even I've been to workshops that have said, without irony, do not reuse any of your passwords. And you kind of go, okay, I get that that's an all right ideal to have in your head, but it's not achievable. Even once you get above like 20 passwords or something, you're not going to remember them. And even <laughs> I if don't. They you can't even remember three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm hopeless. And yeah. And even if they are strictly unique, they're probably pretty similar. They're probably the same word with different numbers or different symbol or whatever, which, you know, again, isn't actually being particularly secure. So, the, you know, a couple of bits of advice. Again, this is advice based on current ideas of what's best. And it, it's hard to know if the future it's going to be still accurate, but that's okay. That's the nature of the beast. Things keep changing. The, the point is to be up to date. Advice at the moment tends to be, you can kind of have tiers of importance for your accounts. So things like work and bank accounts, really important stuff. So for them, hopefully you've only got a couple of passwords, make sure they're different from each other, but most importantly, make sure they're not the same as your lower important accounts. Then you've got sort of medium tier stuff, which might be say your emails, things that are probably linked to more important stuff maybe, but are not necessarily gonna be the end of the world if people get into them, you will just change your password and move on, it's not too bad. They can be perhaps a bit lower strength in it and you can probably get away with reusing across those you wouldn't want to reuse those with the higher up accounts but mm. reuse across probably doesn't matter too much and then you've got the really low important importance account stuff where there's no bank details attached to it you know sometimes with online shopping you you save your credentials in it so that kind of raises the level of security you need on that but sometimes you've got an account just to log into a random website online that who knows if you'll ever even log into it again or you know it's just like like for news or something, that if, if someone gets into that account, there's very little that they can do. So for that, it's not such a risk to have something really simple. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will just use the name of the business or, you know, password one or whatever, if you are using that. doesn't matter so much as long as that's different from your high, really high importance accounts. Because for those, when they, when they leak, the Yahoo leak famously was huge. Billions mm. of credentials were revealed. There isn't much you can do with a Yahoo account. For some of them, maybe they would have had banking details saved in them for certain services that Yahoo offered. But really the risk there was that what was leaked was your 
email address and password combination. And if you've used that same combination on your bank, then suddenly they're in. So that's really the risk. Reuse is, is the risk there. And, and so when you're using these really low importance accounts, yeah, by all means, reuse passwords and make them simple. But for that really critically important stuff, try to have them as separate as possible. And so by having that sort of tiered system, you can kind of get a grasp on it. The other thing you can do is, you know, password managers, right? They're available. Some of them are even built into browsers where they'll suggest passwords for you. They let you, it, it'll create the password for you half the time and it will then remember it for you. So you won't have to know it in the future. And that means you've got completely unique passwords across all of your accounts. There's mixed sort of views on, on password managers because you could also make the argument that by implementing a password manager, you've also implemented a single point of failure. So if someone gets into the password manager, suddenly they have all of your credentials. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the counter argument to that is, well, most people are reusing their passwords anyway. So that's already the case that if they get into one, they can get into everything else. So it, it really depends on where the threat's coming from. But I tend to come down on the side that sure, password managers have their risks. But I think overall, they're probably a bit more secure than, you know, reusing your passwords across everything. So, you know, there are a couple of sort of quick takeaways of sort of managing the password overwhelm problem. And coming up with a solution to it is important because we hear constantly that passwords are about to you know, die with the death of passwords, right? It's going to be biometrics or it's going to be this or that, you know, and that's been said since the 80s, really. The unfortunate truth is that passwords have a, their balance of how easy they are to implement technically and the security they offer, that trade-off is actually pretty good. So they're going to be with us for longer than we might expect. And so we do need to come up with ways that we can get a handle on them. So if we were to support business, small, medium, large, in regards to fatigue of cybersecurity strategies, what would be some tips that you would recommend to myself to be able to pass on and use within my own business? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you've noticed that employees are cyber fatigued, Hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of ways you can tackle. I think the big thing is to identify where the fatigue is coming from. And this is something that I think actually the paper you cited at the start, that's what that, the point of that paper was about, mm. was that fatigue can come from advice. And we've talked about advice fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it's constantly changing, it's complicated, etc. But fatigue can also come from what we call action. Okay. And so we tend to call it action fatigue. So that's not about being told what to do. That is just having to do these different things throughout our day that we do in the name of security. Um, so maybe it's we have to, we're constantly getting prompts to update our passwords, or maybe we have to keep logging on to, um, you know, multi-factor authentication systems that then time out after 30 minutes and we have to re-log back on. Or maybe we get a huge amount of emails throughout the day that we have to be constantly checking, is it real, is it fake? All of those things are actions we have to do, the demands, you could say, to keep up and, and to remain secure, but it's they can be frustrating. And mm. so you can be fatigued from that as well. And so those people that are fatigued from that sort of stuff, they might not be, they're not tired of being told what to do. They're tired of operating frustrating systems. And the reverse is true as well. If someone is tired of being told what to do, it wouldn't make much sense to try to simplify the systems they're using because that's not actually where the the fatigue is coming from. So yeah, I think if the problem is that you've identified that your staff are fatigued about the concept of cybersecurity, 
yeah, try to work out where that's coming from first and foremost mm. and then tackle that. And that comes back to what I was saying about the sort of non-judgmental approach mm. because really the way to work out where it's coming from is to ask them yep. and you want an honest answer. So you need to set up a relationship with them where they're going to give you that answer that they're not going to be judged. And, and if they say that the reason they're fatigued is because they're sick of being told what to do, Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to feel comfortable enough to say that. No, that's really good advice. I think having that open conversation and communication is definitely a must. And ha- I guess having a bit of a brain break in between sessions because we seem to be on our computers a lot. So I guess to sum up, and, and you know, not just really our computers, but we're on our smartphones. We're be- we're between so many devices. And that's you know that's the other side of it as well. Like we. Fatigue is normal. It's it's mm. human to get tired after we do things. There's, um, there's nothing bad or wrong about it, but there are also relatively predictable outcomes of that. You know, when we're in a fatigued state, we tend to be more error prone. Um, mm. We tend to make quick decisions that are less reliable and we tend to take the path of least resistance, which often means following the status quo or, you know, and, you know, those things are all predictable and they all happen when we're fatigued. So the other way you can think about it is, you know, rather than thinking, how do I prevent my staff from being fatigued or how do I un- you know, unfatigue them, if that's such a word. You know, and, um, it is now. Then, <laughs> rather than that, it is now, exactly. There we go. Now, <laughs> rather than doing that, you could think, well, we know what the, we know that they're human and they're going to be fatigued at times and we know what the outcomes of that will be. Okay, can we look at why are these people having to make, what, what, is, what is the system around them that's mean that they're doing really critical things at times when they're fatigued? And is it possible that we could realign the way they do their job mm-hmm. so that the tasks they're doing when they're fatigued are the less important ones? And then all the stuff they're doing that's critical, if it goes right or wrong, they're doing when they're most alert, whenever that may be. And maybe that's different per person. So that's the other way you can think about it as well, rather than trying to just batter at the door of fatigue, just say, well, no, it's going to happen. How do we kind of work with it? Thank you. We will have to leave it there. But to basically, to sum up, on today's chat, I guess the first things that we need to do is recognise when our staff are fatigued and even ourselves, communicate, ask what's going on, and then finally implement some strategies within a business to prevent any sort of fatigue that may happen, which in turn can have a negative impact on a business. So have I summed that up okay? You have. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the only thing I'd add, you know, is work out what it is about security. Like how does that align to your business strategy? You know, if it uh, is mm. it going to enable you to scale out and make more money? Is it going to enable you to service a key stakeholder? Whatever it happens to be, because that will inform what how you pitch that to your staff as well. If they're fatigued mm. and they they know the business has a certain function to achieve something or other, then you can pitch it and say, "Now the reason we're doing security is because it enables us to." Da, 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 da. If you can work out how that aligns, that's going to help as well. Oh, that's great! That's, thank you for that. That was Thanks, awesome. Andrew. So yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to the Business Big Bang Theory podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please review and rate us through iTunes. And follow and share on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn at The Business Centre.